Peace be with you, and welcome to The Word Unveiled. Our program is entitled, A Brief History of the Curcio Movement. So as in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you gave us your Son to bring your word into our world. Open our hearts that your will might enter into us and motivate us to share what we learn with a world struggling for meaning. Holy Spirit, guide us in this Bible study and lead us to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, Curcio, the formal name is Curcios de Cristinad, and it means short courses of Christianity or short courses in Christianity. It's a movement which, by its own method, attempts from within the church to give life to the essential Christian truths and the singularity, originality, and creativity of the person. So it begins in Spain. So let's just kind of step back and take a little look at how Spain came to be. In the days of the Roman Empire, there was no Spain, but there was the Roman province of Iberia. And at that time, not long, around the year 40 AD, St. James the Greater made a pilgrimage, or actually made a missionary trip, to Spain, and he went to the northwest corner of it, and he founded a mission called Santiago de Compostelo, which later became a pilgrimage site through the Middle Ages. Around the year 600, Islamic raiders from Morocco, who were known as Moors, began to invade Spain, and they pushed all the way up to the French border. And then between the years 800 and finally culminating in the year 1492, the last of the Moors were driven from Spain by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. And But you probably recognize those names as for something that they also did in that very same year, and that's that they financed Christopher Columbus's trip to find a route to India. Well, following that time period, in the next 100 to 150 years, Spain became uh, quite famous for many very great saints. Among those were Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Ignatius of Loyola. And as Spain expanded its holdings around the world, it at one time controlled half of South America, all of Central America, most of the Caribbean, all of Southwest the United States, um, parts of Morocco and North Africa, islands as far away as the Philippines. But by 1898, only Cuba, Puerto Rico, and North America, and Morocco and Africa, and the Philippine Islands were still in Spanish control. And that brings us to the age of imperialism, uh, American imperialism, from about 1870 to 1910. And there were a lot of people that were pushing the United States to continue moving west, and after they got to the Pacific, move even farther west and acquire more territory. The political cartoon that's on the screen shows uh, Uncle Sam sitting at a dinner table and his waiter is President McKinley. And the bill of fare on the wall shows Cuba steak, Puerto Rico pig, uh, Philippines floating islands, and the Sandwich Islands, which was actually Hawaii. So there's all these territories that the United States is looking at rather covetously. Well, so, however, it came about the United States battleship Maine 
was destroyed in Havana Harbor, and that became the reason to go to war with Spain. And Spain was not prepared for that war, could not stand up to the United States, and suffered humiliating defeats all around the world, and they lost essentially all of their foreign colonies. As they were very crippled, they were no longer a world power, and in fact, they weren't involved in the First World War. They sat it out in a neutral stance. Nobody sought their aid. They, uh, they weren't a participant. And then in the 1920s, the uh, illiteracy rate in Spain was more than 50%. That was extremely high, higher than any other country in Western Europe, higher than any but maybe third world nations. And politically, there was a number of groups that were all vying for power. There were the royalists who were trying to support the king because Spain still had a king, but it also had a, a parliament that it elected. And then there was socialists, trade unionists, fascists on the far right, anarchists who didn't believe in any government at all, and communists. And they're all vying for power, and they would all get elected to different posts and then try to change the laws and try to, try to usurp control with a small um, majority. And this went on and on and on from 1920 until 1936. And in 1936, the left-wing Republicans, that phrase sounds funny today, but the Republicans were those who didn't want a king. They wanted a republic, but they wanted a socialist republic. So they were uh, left-wing. They took office. And when they did, they decided to write all the, rewrite all the laws regarding property and business owners, and they basically wanted to take the wealth from those who had it and give it to those who didn't. And that, that was their modus operandi, and of course that created many enemies. So the church, which controlled the school system, was stripped of all power, and the army, which tended to be right-wing, went out in revolt against the government, and a civil war began. And these photos on the screen show the people Filling sandbags, blocking streets, finding rifles, anything they could find as a weapon. And the fighting uh, was, was uh, very guerrilla-like in the streets. And in the beginning, neither side gained an advantage. The army was very poorly led. They didn't have a, a strategy for how to regain power. And the people were just waiting for attacks. So after some early successes, um, the Republicans became bolstered by foreign volunteers. And one of the photos shows, it says the Tom Mooney Company, it's the Abraham Lincoln Battalion. Those were volunteers from the United States. There were volunteers from other countries all around the world who came to Spain to fight for the people. And the army didn't have an effective leader, so they looked around for who could lead them, and they found their, their man in Francisco Franco. He was a general. He was in the colony in Morocco, and Morocco had not gone out in revolt, and so they called him to Spain to take charge. Now, at the same time, the fascist party infiltrated the royalist side and began to bring in aid from Italy. They leaned on their friend Benito Mussolini. And pretty soon, the fascist sympathizers from both Italy and Germany sent uh, soldiers and modern aircraft and equipment to the struggle. And what we saw happen in Spain was a, almost a prelude to the Second World War. German aircraft did blitzkrieg attacks on towns, and the famous artist Pablo Picasso painted a picture which depicted the terror and, and the, uh, the misery of being in one of these attacks, and it was entitled Guernica, 
a village that had been attacked in a blitzkrieg fashion. Now, the new tactics were very successful, and it started to divide the, the Republican forces up into pockets. And then the Republicans started to argue with themselves, and they started to have internal squabbles and internal fights. And the tide slowly began to turn in favor of the fascists, who are now firmly in control of the right-wing forces. Perhaps in frustration over the infighting and the loss of control, the left wing now began to persecute an enemy they could overpower, which was the church. So churches were, were destroyed without warning. Many of them were uh, burned to the ground. This photo shows um, guerrillas with their rifles shooting at a statue of the Blessed Virgin for target practice. And then homes of prominent Catholic people were also destroyed and, um, and priests and religious sisters were dragged out of their buildings into the streets or into cemeteries and were usually shot dead on the spot. So as, these, um, as the army started to regain control of Spain, the socialist forces lost control of the government. They had no communications and they started to retreat north, north toward France. But before the hostilities ceased, 4,184 priests were killed, 2,365 religious brothers were killed, 283 nuns were paraded out in the street and shot, and 500,000 citizens on all sides of the conflict were killed, and hundreds of thousands became homeless. So, as I mentioned before, the Republicans began to fight amongst themselves, and then most of them fled over the border to France, leaving the nation leaderless. And Franco then assumed control of the entire country, and on April 1st, 1939, he declared the war officially ended. World War II would begin just five months later. Hostilities ceased, but executions continued sporadically. And this happened because people, civil war is a terrible war, and people would say, you killed my uncle, and so they would shoot somebody. So, the, so assassinations continued for a long time. And the tragedy is that a nation in which the population was 95% Catholic was killing itself. Civil wars are the most destructive and hateful of conflicts. Now, Pope Pius XII uh, rose to the chair of Peter in 1939. And on February 6, 1940, he appealed to the world. He appealed to the people of Spain. And he asked them, then the leaders there, uh, saying that they had all moved away from Christian life. He challenged church leaders to make every effort to bring the people back to Christian values. And people of faith began to organize pilgrimages to religious sites. And none was more popular than the site that St. James the Greater had established way back in 44 AD, and that was at Santiago de Compostelo. And soon pilgrimages were organized to go there. And the shout of Altrea was heard, which means onward. Here's a map that shows where the typical uh, pilgrimage route. If you started in Pamplona, you would walk all the way across northern Spain until you got to Santiago de Compostelo in the extreme northwest corner. But this was dangerous because tempers and, and hatred was still quite high. So pilgrims needed to have some organization, some protection. So schools of leaders were formed to help the pilgrims make the journey safely. And soon the cry of Altrea was heard on every road. 
Now, a statement that describes pretty much what had happened is, is what's on the screen. The world had turned its back on Christ and the church. They had a deep-seated conviction that life had ceased to be Christian and that the influence Christianity had on everyday life was practically non-existent, even in Catholic circles. So the pilgrimages were the first sign of coming back to the faith. And as they walked through the fields and they saw the wildflowers, wild flowers bloom, they sang a cursio hymn, which is called decolores, which means the colors, the colors of the wildflowers in the field. Now, about the same time, a man by the name of Eduardo Bonin Aguila, who was born in 1917, was drafted into the army during the Civil War. He was just 18 years of age. He was a very devout Catholic, and he was shocked by the conduct of the soldiers. They never prayed. They never attended Mass. They, had, they didn't exhibit their faith at all. And so he thought about this long and hard. He prayed to the Lord, and he developed what come, came to be known as Curcios in Christianity, short course in Christianity, and he said it was a gift from the Holy Spirit. It appeared to him in vision. And it was a three-day retreat. That's what he envisioned. And it would prepare, and the three days would prepare people to understand their faith, come back to their faith, and prepare them to live the fourth day, which is the rest of their life. So the first Curcio retreat that was conducted was conducted on Bonin's home island of Mallorca, which is in the Mediterranean just off Barcelona. And it happened in June of 1944. June of 1944 is when the Allies landed in Normandy. So the rest of the world was busy killing itself, and the first Curcio was taking place at a small island in the Mediterranean. This is the building in which the first Curcio was con conducted. And this is a photograph of an early Curcio team. And the candidates are all quite young. The, the young boy in the, in the foreground looks to be 10 or 12 years old. And this was conducted in 1944. So what is a Curcio weekend? Well, this diagram gives us a pretty good idea. If you look at the diagram, at the very bottom, it says Thursday. Thursday night is a time of prayer, a time of silent meditation, and a time to ponder questions that the team puts to the candidates who are making this weekend. It's a three-day retreat. Three days are not by accident, they, they recognize the three days of the passion and resurrection of Christ. So Friday is the first day, and the theme is to know yourself. So there are 10 lay talks, that is, lay people give the talks, and there are five talks that are given by religious, priests or deacons. And in the first day, there's a, there's a question of what is your ideal? And then there's a talk about habitual grace and actual grace and another talk about the layperson's role in the church, and finally a talk about piety. How do you get the sin out of your life? How do you get the bad habits out of your life? So know yourself is the first day's theme. The second day's theme is know Christ. And so it begins with study. How do you know your faith? You must study. Study the scriptures, study the faith, study the sacraments, understand the sacraments. And once you do that, learn that works as a part of faith so that you take action. How can you help others? And then there's another talk about obstacles to grace. What, what traps might be in front of you to keep you from advancing? And finally, the last talk is about leaders. Everybody is called to be a leader. Everybody has a charism, a special skill that they have that can make them a leader 
in one area or another. The third day is no Christ in others, and that's on Sunday. And so there's a study of the environments, the environments, your family, where you work, where you uh, go, your parish, uh, where you might shop, people that you know. Study the environments. Who is it that needs to hear the word of the gospel? Who is it that needs to come to Christ? Then a life in grace is a, is a spiritual talk. And then there are three more talks, which is Christian action, the cursoista beyond the cursio. What do you do after you complete this uh, retreat? And then total security. And where is total security? Of course, in the Lord. The four, then there's a big celebration. When it's over with, your family will arrive uh, unbeknownst to you and help you celebrate. And then the fourth day is the rest of your life. The cursio has a prayer. It's adopted from Psalm 104. And it goes like this. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by that same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. What does a Curcio weekend look like? Well, here's a photograph from a weekend. The man on the left is a cha-cha. Cha-cha is a Spanish word for a servant or somebody who takes care, brings food. And so his job is to make sure everybody has plenty to eat all during the weekend. His little button says, hug a cha-cha, and he's wearing an apron that is composed of many, many colors, like the flowers in the field. So, de colores. Music is another important part of the weekend. The man in the center is John Murphy. John Murphy is a former parishioner of St. Malachy Church, and he made his Curcio weekend the same time I made mine. Jerry Gerby, also from St. Malachy Church, is practicing a talk. And each of the talk, the 10 talks that the lay team makes, are, are the, a person is assigned the talk, he writes the talk, but they practice it in front of the team, and the team helps edit it and modify it so that the team gives every single talk. Here's things you'll see on the tables at a Curcio weekend. A lot of candy, a lot of treats, a lot of food all the time. Uh, the rooster, which is a symbol of Curcio. And then some books. The Pilgrim's Guide, which is a daily uh, meditation and prayer, prayer book that's given to each of the, of the candidates. And the Good News Bible is a, is a gift that one of our Curcioistas has given to every person that makes a weekend for the last 28 years. Palanca. Palanca is a Spanish word that means lever, and a lever is used to lift something. Well, the lifting here is done by letters that are written to the candidates. While the candidates are on retreat, they cannot talk to anybody in the outside world. There are no phones. There are no, there's no way to communicate. Nobody can come and visit. They are isolated for three days, totally immersed in the weekend. But at certain times in the evening of each of the days, They'll go back to their rooms, and they will find envelopes on their bed, and in the envelopes are palanca, letters from friends, from family, that encourage them, that tell them what they are doing. Some will say, I'm praying 10 rosaries for you this weekend. Uh, others will say, I'm going to Mass every day this weekend for you. So there will be something that, that is offered up, and, uh, and it helps lift up the candidate during their weekend. The talks are 
rather informal. Nobody dresses special for, for the events. Uh, there's plenty of music. This is from a closing, uh, from a women's retreat. I should say the Curcio weekends are always set up for men or for women, but never together. And he's got the whole world, whole world in his hands. is a very favorite Curcio hymn, and it's sung almost every, every time there's a retreat. Here's another photo from a closing, and you can see this is where the family and friends have arrived to uh, witness the final talks, which is now by the candidates who um, express how this weekend has changed them. They're always discouraged from saying thank you for this week. No, how has it affected you? How has it changed you? And when they make that talk, they receive this uh, silver cross of, of Christ, and on the back it says Christ is counting on us. And everybody gets one, and this is mine, which I'm holding up here. And that's, and then they'll wear that the rest of their life. So how did Curcio begin in Michigan and begin in Detroit? Well, I love this photograph because the sun is setting, but do you notice how the two contrails from the jet airliners has made a cross in the sky? Curcio came to Detroit in 1962. The first four Curcios were conducted in the Spanish language. In fact, Curcio came from Spain to the United States in 1957. Two Spanish soldiers who were training with U.S. airmen in Waco, Texas, brought the Curcio movement to Texas. It took root in Texas uh, in 1957. Within five years, it was in Detroit. And the first home of the Curcio in Detroit was St. Leo Church in downtown Detroit. Here's a photograph of the first uh, team and the candidates from Curcio number eight, October 1962. There were from uh, weekend one until 134, those were all held at St. Leo's. And in weekend 134, a change took place. It was exclusively Catholic up until that time. And in uh, December of 1969, um, an Episcopal priest, and a Catholic priest who was this, the uh, uh, um, spiritual director for the retreat asked and decided to try to combine their, their uh, parishes in, in doing a uh, curcio. And that went on for until 1987. And unfortunately, what happened is that the talks on the sacraments and other uh, parts of the faith got watered down so that it was more acceptable to the Protestant uh, attendees. And then finally decided that is not working anymore, and they went back to an all-Catholic Curcio at the, after that time. Uh, after being based at St. Leo's, Curcio moved to Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit in the 1970s and the 1980s, and a young seminarian by the name of Joseph Gambala made his Curcio weekend right there at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. Uh, here's a photo of a women's weekend in May 1973, and you can see there's about 60 people in this photograph. So they, and through the, the 60s, the 70s, and into the 80s, Curcio was immensely popular. There were something like eight to 12 weekends every year, and there was 50 to 60 people in attendance. In Sacred Heart Seminary, a space was carved out for a while uh, that was uh, made exclusive for the excuse, exclusive use of Curcio. And one of the Curcistas, Paul Fortier, who was an artist, painted this mural on the wall, and it shows people of faith in all ages from the beginning of, of the faith, walking through history, coming up to the present day. After uh, being at St. Uh, 
Sacred Heart Major Seminary for quite some time, Curcio moved to St. Anne's Church, and there were two weekends that were conducted there in 1987. And then it moved on to St. Mary's Church for one Curcio, and then over to Guardian Angels Catholic Church in Clawson for four Curcio weekends. This is an example of some of the artwork that's produced by people during the weekend, uh, and I love this. It says, to love Jesus is foolish. Okay, I can do that. And then Curcio went to Dunscotus Seminary, Franciscan Seminary in Southfield, which is now closed. Uh, but in 1990, there was one weekend there. And Father Ron Milligan was the spiritual director. He becomes a real hero of Curcio. The next Curcio is held at Assumption Grotto, and he's a spiritual director there as well. But when he's made the pastor of Sacred Heart Church in Roseville, he invites Curcio to his parish, gives him a permanent building to uh, conduct weekends in, and that goes on for eight years uh, from, from Curcio 303 to 343, and only ends when the building department condemns the building for some safety violations, and there's not enough money to correct it. So then Curcio moved to Our Lady Queen of Peace in Harper Woods, and it was there for several years, another women's weekend. And then it moved to a almost abandoned, but not quite, uh, parish called St. Rita's, which is on State Fair in Detroit. And two weekends were conducted there, 369, a women's weekend, and 370 was conducted in 2006. And this is the team for... Uh, Weekend 370, the theme was, surely it is God who saves us. The rector was Sam Toya. And the spiritual directors, again, were Father Ron Milligan, but also Father Mark Brower. And this beardless guy here in the front made his Curcio weekend in uh, January of 2006. And that's, of course, me. The next two uh, Curcios happened at St. Bartholomew Parish down the street. But both of these parishes were closed and Curcio then found a more permanent home out in Oxford at St. Mary's Retreat House and was there for uh, about 11 or 12 years until that facility closed. Uh, Curcio gained more momentum at this time. You'll notice that the weekends are larger, more, more men involved, more women uh, on the weekends. And so the weekend, this shows weekend 397, but I believe they've just completed weekend 412. So that means there's been 412 Curcio weekends in Detroit since 1962. Over 7,000 people have become Curcioistas. But meanwhile, back in Spain, in Santiago de Compostela, remember that was the pilgrimage church that uh, St. James established, and it was the place where the people began pilgrimages to find their faith again in Spain. Back in Spain, in the year 2012, they are swinging the great censer. It's filled with incense. And it takes six to eight men, the deacons and acolytes, to pull on this huge rope. And that censer will swing back and forth in this cathedral church. And in 2012, Father Joseph Gambala, who was a Curseista since 1989, he arrived on pilgrimage with blisters on his feet, all worn out. When he arrived, the bishop, who was about to start Mass, was notified that an American priest had arrived. He asked him, hurry, quick, get him some vestments. They got Father the vestments to wear. They hurried him into the 
into the church, and the bishop asked him to concelebrate, not to just participate with him, which is what usually happens when a bishop and priest celebrate mass. No, he wanted him to concelebrate. So Father Joe took the big shovel, and he filled the uh, the uh, the censer with the um, incense and and, he, and, he, and said mass with the bishop there at Santiago de Compostela in 2012. Now, what is how how do you find out more about Crisillo? Well, Crisillo has Altreas. Remember, Altrea means onward, and there are four that are currently uh, in practice. On the second Saturday of every month at 10 o'clock, right here at St. Malachy Church, Crisillo has an Altrea. Uh, St. Benedict's Church in Waterford has it on the fourth Tuesday in the evening. St. Andrew's Church in Rochester, uh, the third Thursday in the in the of the month in the evening. And Holy Family Church in Memphis is also in the evening on the second Monday of the month. You can find out more about Curcio by going to www.curciodetroit.com or go to www.nationalnatl-curcio.org or contact St. Malachy and I will get you some information about the, the movement. And yes, that's the back of my car. And it does say, got Curcio? Okay, so let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Altrea. Thanks for listening. Peace be with you.